There we go. Good evening and welcome to uh, week 19 and the conclusion of our survey of the prophecy book named after the author and prophet Ezekiel. Uh, We'll finish tonight our consideration of the last two chapters, which we began last week. Um, And then we'll take a few moments at the end to um, summarize, to consider the big picture of of the whole of this piece of literature. And so if you would, let's stand and again read, beginning in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, Um, And as always, if you have a hard time finding Ezekiel, just open to the middle and flip to the right. You'll find it. Ezekiel 47. Uh, And this, again, just by way of review from last week as we kind of uh, run up to where we are this evening, I'd like to take in these opening 12 verses, uh, this description of this new temple this temple that was never built in history so far, and the water that flows from it and what the water accomplishes. Ezekiel 47. Then he, that's his angelic guide, brought me, Ezekiel, back to the door of the temple, and behold, water is issuing from below the threshold of the temple, toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And so a thousand cubits, that would have been 1,000 times 18 inches. He he, he wants to do the math and convert that to feet. Well, 1,800 inches. So that's how many feet. I know what to do. I'm asking you to do it. 150 feet? 150 feet. It's probably about the length of this room from the, from the doors to the back of the... something around that much. So it, it moves 150 feet and it goes from being a trickle to being ankle deep. You see that? That's the, that's, so we can imagine it a little bit. Verse 4, again he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. And again another thousand and he led me through the water, it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand and it was a river that could not pass, that I could not pass through. The water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea, that is the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. 
Now, how many of you have seen the pictures of the, the banks of the Dead Sea? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah. It's just littered with, like, salt rocks, right? You ever seen video and images of people floating and swimming in the Dead Sea? They just, they just float there. They don't sink. The water is so dense, full of salt, that you don't even sink in it. You just float in it. But in this vision, he sees that very Dead Sea teeming now with life. Verse 8, And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, down to the Arabah, and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for uh, this, just another brief glimpse at this amazing vision that Ezekiel was granted. The new temple, a vision of a a whole new uh, creation, a whole new order of things, the renewal of the dead uh, into that which is teeming with life, a miraculous overcoming of death by the waters that flow from the temple. It's a grand vision, and it's full of symbolism and hope. And so tonight, as we conclude this book, may we be reminded that these are your intentions to make all things new. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, verse 12 kind of summarizes this new temple river. And if you were taking notes last week, we, that was the one point we got to. Uh, the new temple river. On the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. And this obviously is not a mere human earthly existence because their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. Fruit trees don't produce fruit in perpetuity. They come and go in seasons. The leaves fall off the trees in the fall, in the autumn, but not, not these trees, not in this existence. They will bear fresh fruit every month because of the water. It flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Of course, those of you who are familiar with Revelation will recognize that phrasing. The fruit of the trees that grow in the new heavens and the new earth as described in Revelation, their food, excuse me, their fruit will be for food and their leaves will be for healing. And so clearly there's a parallel between this new temple and this water and the effect on creation itself. There's a parallel between what Ezekiel sees and what John the Revelator saw. And so it's not a leap to assume that what Ezekiel is seeing is in fact the, the, the new heavens and the new earth. At minimum, he's seeing what pre-millennial eschatologists call 
the millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus literally reigns on earth for a thousand years as the king of the earth. And his very presence on earth changes earth's complexion to where if you die at a hundred years old, you die an early death. Uh, these are the descriptions that are told metaphorically or literally of children playing over dens of snakes, of poisonous snakes, of the lion and the lamb hanging out together as opposed to the lion eating the lamb. So at minimum, we're looking at the effect of Jesus on his earth At maximum, we're looking at the new heavens and the new earth. We're certainly looking at language that symbolically portrays what it looks like for, if you will, the water that flows from the heart of Jesus on the cross flowing down and onto creation. You might remember when Jesus died, he was pierced. The soldiers came around to break his legs, but there was a prophecy that none of the limbs, no bones of the Messiah would be broken. And so while the soldiers broke the legs of the two men who were crucified with Jesus, when they came to him, they thought, oh, well, he's dead, no need to break his legs. The breaking of the legs was intended to expedite the death. Oh, he's already dead, no need to break his legs, let's make sure. And they thrust a spear into his heart and it reads, blood and water flowed. Well, well, what is a, a temple? What was the tabernacle? What was the temple? Well, it was the dwelling place of God with man, right? Well, what is the incarnation of Jesus? Is it not... God dwelling with man in human form in a remarkable, unrepeatable, one-time event. Here it is, Jesus, essentially the walking, talking temple of God. And at his crucifixion, water flows out from him. And of course, friends, what is accomplished at the crucifixion except that those of us who drink of him and eat of him. We are made new. We are recreated. A miraculous transformation takes place in us like what's being described here on the land from the water that flows out from the temple. Now, we do that little exercise, number one, just to remind us of what we were talking about last week, but number two, to remember that's what we're talking about. We're talking about pictorial, symbolic imagery. Translating prophecy into modern day uh, moments is hard. You know, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they were watching Jesus fulfill prophecy left and right, and they, and they missed it right? And then it was then after Jesus' death and resurrection that then so many began to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Oh, he was fulfilling prophecy. 
and the gospel writers saying he said this to fulfill this prophecy. And the apostles write the letters of the New Testament and they allude to Jesus fulfilling prophecy. But when it was happening in real time, it was going all over, over all of their heads. Now I, I mention that just to note that it's difficult to interpret future prophecy. And so we don't need to get too hung up on the details, but we do need to recognize the beauty and the symbolism of what's being portrayed. The water that flows from the temple makes all things new. Everything will live where the river goes. And so it was a great picture to see last week of the, uh, the miraculous transformation As John Skinner put it, when all causes of offense are removed from Israel and Jehovah smiles on his people, this is what it looks like. Well, the second section here in chapter 47 is, if you're taking notes, the division of the land. The division of the land. And I want to read just a little bit for you to get a flavor of it. This extends all the way into chapter 48, verse 29, this division and allotment of the land. There's just a couple of key things that we'll want to observe. Let's begin, uh, read along with me in verse 13 of chapter 47. Thus says the Lord God, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Bible students will remember when Moses led the people, uh, as they approached the promised land, they uh, expelled a couple of kings. Uh, Sihon is one of them, and I, I want to say that another guy's name is Og. Uh, and, and three of the tribes, I think it's Gad, Manasseh, and Reuben, those three tribes settled in that land, which is what we call today the West Bank. It is the, uh, the land that is to the east of the Jordan River. And then with Joshua, Joshua led the people across the Jordan River, where the Hebrew people got their name. Hebrew means those who crossed over. And the rest of the tribes... Uh, settled the land of Israel. And when they settled it, it was divided up. You have this portion, you have that portion. Judah has this portion to the south. Benjamin has this portion kind of in the middle. And it was, it was already divvied up. And then, of course, they occupy the land. They go into exile, and Ezekiel sees this vision. Thus says the Lord, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land. So it's a a redivision. Joseph, Joseph shall have two portions, verse 14, and you shall divide equally what I swore to give your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. Now, Bible students, that, those of you, again, familiar with the text of the Old Testament, that should ring in your ears. Was the land divided equally the first time? It was divided based on what? Just shout it out. Go ahead. 
Numbers, that's right. How big is this particular family? If you're this big, you get this much land. If you're this big, you get this much land. But in the new division, it's divided equally. This shall be the boundary, verse 15 of the land, on the north side from the great sea by the way of Hethlon to Lebo Hamath and on to Zedad. So I hope that helps. Berothan, Sibraim, which lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, as far as Hazer Hadakon, which is the border of Haran. So the boundary shall run from the sea to Hazar Enon, which is on the northern border of Damascus, with the border of Hamath to the north. This shall be on uh, the north side. And it goes on like this, with places and cities and sites and landmarks. It goes on. And then, once you get into chapter 48, it goes like this. Jump with me over to 48. Uh, Let's go to verse 8. Adjoining the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion which you shall set apart 25,000 cubits in breadth and in length equal to one of the tribal portions from the east side to the west with the sanctuary in the midst of it. The portion that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 20,000 in breadth. These shall be the allotments of the holy portion. The priest shall have an allotment measuring 25,000 cubits on the north side, 10,000 cubits in breadth on the western side, 10,000 cubits in breadth on the eastern side, 25,000 in length on the southern side with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst. And if you just glance down the page, you can see those numbers. They keep repeating themselves, don't they? Verse 13, alongside the territory of the priests, the Levites shall have an allotment, 25,000 cubits in length, 10,000 in breadth. The whole length shall be 25,000 cubits and the breadth, 20,000. Verse 20, the whole portion that you shall set apart shall be 25,000 cubits square. That is the holy portion together with the property of the new city. So you've got a couple of things here, friends, and for us to go through all of it, it would be exhaustive and, quite frankly, dry. I don't think I'm a good enough teacher to make this interesting. Essentially, what's being described is the land of Israel as we know it, as we understand it, on a map. And strips of land divided evenly, essentially going across for each tribe, an equal allotment. And then when you get down into the area where the new temple is, that's the big description of what the Levites have and where the temple sits, and then strips of land. Everything is evenly portioned. Everything is perfectly divided up. The only distinction is where the city of God dwells, essentially right in the middle of everyone. Well, again, recognizing that these are symbolic pictures of illustrative truths. The old boundaries are nothing like these new boundaries. These are all equal in dimension. And the symbolism is, again, the key to understanding the point that is being made in God's description. The temple dimensions were a perfect square which is less about aesthetics and more about the symbolism of perfection. The land is perfect because it's been touched by the water 
The land is perfectly divided, showing that the inheritance of God's people is perfect. Perfect division, made perfect by the water, and the presence of God dwelling in the midst. We do not anticipate an eternity with God where he dwells in his perfect temple and we occupy only a very good space. No, that, where, that which we occupy with God is a perfect space because God dwells with his people and they with him. So that's what's going on here. That's the point that's being made is that in the new creation where God dwells perfectly at peace with his people, so too his people occupy a perfect space. A perfect, excuse me, a perfected people occupying a cleansed space that is perfect in proportion where the temple of God dwells perfectly and harmoniously with them. Do you see the point? That's what all this is about. It's symbolic of this new heaven, the new earth, this new space. Secondly, it's worth noting in verse 22 of chapter 47. 47.22, you shall allot it as an inheritance for yourself, look, and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you, they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Verse 23, in whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Who is the sojourner? living in this new land with the people of Israel. Anybody want to take a guess? Come on, it's okay if you're wrong. <laughs> That's right. Daniel, Daniel, Dylan's right. It's the Gentiles. The sojourner dwelling among redeemed Israel are the Gentile nations, all of the non-Jews. They don't have a separate portion. I say they, we, right? You don't have a separate portion. You don't have all the tribes of Israel and then over here is the space for the non-Jews. No, interspersed among the Jewish people are all of the non-Jews who live among them. They are to be like you and share the inheritance with you. It's a great picture. All the non-Jewish believers in the new heaven and the new earth enjoying the blessings promised to Israel through Christ. See, this is important to recognize because so much of the New Testament deals with confronting the misconception among the Jews that they were chosen because they're special to the exclusion of everyone else. They were special because they were chosen. They weren't chosen because they're special. And God had a purpose in their choosing and that purpose was accomplished in the giving of the law so that all the nations of the world would go, wow, what a wise God who's given you such a wise law. All the way leading up to the person of Christ through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. It is 
It is the descendants of Japheth who hide in the tents of Shem, which are the three sons of Noah, Hem, Shem, and Japheth. These were the promises spoken over them prophetically that that Japheth would hide in the tents of Shem. And if you look at a lineage chart, Japheth and his descendants occupied all of Asia and India and the Far East along with the Germanic tribes and the Scandinavian tribes. The people of Shem essentially occupied the, the Near East and the people of Ham occupied the Middle East and Africa. And they had various prophecies spoken over them and their descendants. And so Japheth hides in the tents of Shem. Shem is where we get the idea of Semitic. They are the descendants of Shem. They are Shemite, Semite. So much of the New Testament deals with confronting the misconception that the, that the Jews were chosen at the exclusion of everyone else. If we don't appreciate this misunderstanding, we won't appreciate why it keeps coming up over and over in the Gospels and the New Testament. Paul, in the, the oldest of the letters in Galatians 3, in fact, I'm just going to turn there quickly. You can join me if you want. I'm just going to turn there briefly and address this. Paul addressing this misconception that the promise and the blessings given to Israel were, were to the exclusion of everyone else in perpetuity. Beginning in verse 7, chapter 3, Paul's, he's saying, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So that means Jews and Gentiles. It's not about heritage it's not about genetics it's about faith and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith now if you're doing a reading plan through the Bible and it's, you're, you're unfamiliar with the scriptures perhaps and you come to this about Abraham and faith and you, you read this and you go, why is this a thing? Why, what's the argument? I don't get it. What's he talking about? Well, that's why we gotta appreciate the whole text of scripture. There was this misconception. But if the Jewish people were really faithful to their Bibles, they would have recognized a long time ago, and many still don't, and many do today, that the purpose was always to incorporate the nations of the world into the blessings of God. And we see one illusion of that right here in Ezekiel 47. So you have a perfect new temple in a perfectly divided land, and then look, you have a perfectly united people. Right? The sojourner and the Hebrew living in the land, the perfectly divided land together, alongside the perfect new temple of God where the water flows out and nourishes everything it touches, giving fruit all year long for food. Perfect temple, 
in a perfectly divided land and now a perfectly united people. Brings us to the last section, number three, if you're taking notes, the city of God. Right, you have the new temple, you have the division of this new land, and you have the city of God. Turn with me to the end of chapter 48, if you will. Beginning in verse 30. Along with a temple structure, there's also the idea of a, of a city with gates. Verse 30 of chapter 48. These shall be the exits of the city on the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure. Three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be, uh, lo and behold, look, it's uniform, 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. So you could imagine this, friends. I mean, just imagine a, a square city, City walls, 4,500 cubits in each direction, three gates on each, 12 gates in all, 12 suns, right? Perfect structure, perfect symmetry. 12 is the, the inclusion of all the people of God. A city represents strength and security in the mind and the writing of the ancient world. To live within the city walls is to be safe from marauders and invaders. To live outside the city walls is to be subject to them and to live in uh, the, the potential fear of invasion at any point. There's a vulnerability to living outside of a city. And so, again, the idea here is... Um, the city of God. It's similar, again, to Revelation. In the new heavens and the new earth, there is also a new city, the new Jerusalem, with walls. Will there really be walls in heaven? Will there, will there be stone structures to protect us from the outside world? I, I don't know. Really? Maybe? But there certainly will be this implication that we are safe with God in his perfect space, right? But the question, of course, is what happens inside that city? It's another symbolic picture of safety and security and renewal and wholeness. Verse 35, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The name of the city shall be the Lord is there. It's an interesting climactic conclusion, isn't it? it to us, it seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? It's like, all right, guys, I'm going to give them and blow your minds. Ready? I'm wearing shoes. All right? This is it? 
is a great tale, a great story about mythical creatures and they're coming here and they're going there and you get to the end and there's the hero and he kills the bad guy and he gets the girl and they go home and, and the, the concluding line is, and they sat down. The end. And you go, really? The name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is, well, of course the Lord's there. Yeah, that's his, it's his temple, and is there another page? Like, did I miss something? Revelation 21, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God, or the dwelling place of God, is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And in this vision, John says, I saw no temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Again, reiterating that illusion we made earlier about Jesus being the temple himself. And the city had no need of the sun, nor of the moon to shine, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And what happens next? The angels and the people of God, they sing praises to his name. The dwelling place of God is with man. The name of that place will be, the Lord is there. Do you know what's wrong with your life? It's that we're here on earth and while the Spirit of God dwells inside his children and promises to be with his children, we're still on this earth not living in the perfect presence of God. That's what's wrong with your life. That's why you're sometimes anxious and fearful and that's why you, uh, you fret over the brokenness in your family, in your extended family. You struggle with some things required of you at work. You have ailments and sleeplessness. Why you worry for the future of your children. Why you buckle up when you get in your car to drive home. The answer to every single problem that you experience in your life is because we're not dwelling in the perfect presence of God. If we were, this would be our experience. Just the river, just purifying everything. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God. And we talked with him. So pure was their conscience, so genuine was their innocence that they were naked and unashamed. At the fall of man, they said, we were naked and so we hid ourselves. God said, who told you you were naked? I created you perfect. And now with the introduction of sin comes shame 
And ever since then, in the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden, we are not walking hand in hand with God in the cool of the day. We are aware of our nakedness. We're aware of our shame. We're aware of our lack of innocence. Won't it be so much better when we get to experience this? The Lord is there. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people. He'll be their God. And we'll worship him and we'll adore him. In the meantime, we get to rehearse for that moment, but it's not quite the same. We're all still wearing clothes. Well, what's the big picture? What's the big picture? Well, it's summarized in that final phrase. The Lord is there. God's presence among his people makes all things new. If you want to make a note in your Bible, what's Ezekiel about? God's presence among his people makes all things new. The Lord is there. This is one of the seven compound names of God found in the Old Testament. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Genesis 22. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Exodus 15. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace, Judges 6. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 26. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner, Exodus 17. Jehovah Ra, the Lord our shepherd, Psalm 23. And then finally, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is present, Ezekiel 48. The Lord is there. G. Campbell Morgan says, the name tells of complete satisfaction. That of God and that of man. The Lord is there. God is at rest among his people, Campbell continues. His original Purpose realized. You get that? Speaking with Daniel yesterday, we were reading through a theology book and we got, we got sidetracked on this idea that the Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knows the beginning from the end. That the Lord stood outside of time and spoke space, matter, and time into existence. In the beginning time, God made the heavens, space, and he made the earth matter. Time, space, and matter. And he stands, if you will, outside of them, speaking them into existence, and he sees the end of the human timeline from the beginning. And what we talked about was how God had a purpose, and the purpose is the end of the book. The Lord is there. His, as Campbell put it, his original purpose realized. 
and everything that precedes it in the human timeline is God's divine means of accomplishing that original purpose. If we could only embrace and appreciate this simple notion that God's very best imagination for us is to be in his presence and him to be in ours. How simple our, our desires might become. Kemble concludes, man is seen at rest in God, his true destiny reached. We will not be fully human until we experience what's described in Ezekiel 38. Then we'll be really completely human. That will be the, the actual perfect human experience. We can go all the way back to chapter one and notice a theme that runs through the whole book. God does not dwell with sin. He cannot, nor with sinful man. And so in chapter one, Ezekiel sees a vision of God. It's like these, there are these wheels and there are these angels. And what is it? It's the presence of God. And what's happening, it's, it's lifting up and out from the temple in Jerusalem and it's leaving. And you say, well, why? Well, in the subsequent chapters, Ezekiel sees what's happening inside the temple and what's happening inside the temple is the priests of God denigrating the place. There's idols set up and there's greed and debauchery and and God's like, peace, I'm out, right? He cannot dwell with sin. He will not dwell with sin, nor will he dwell with sinful man. Psalm 5, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you the boastful shall not stand before your eyes you hate all evildoers this characteristic of God is not in question we hear this idea God loves the sinner but hates the sin the scriptures don't support that the scripture says we're at war with God until we repent Ezekiel is like one big treatise to this point God expels his own chosen people from their land, but not before abandoning the very temple where he promised and chose to make his name dwell in Jerusalem. God allowed heathen kings to invade and punish his chosen people. Then he punished those kings. There was no cleansing ritual sufficient to cover the sin of the people. They must be remade altogether. Thus, in chapter 36, God declares that he would give them a new heart by which his people would be enabled to obey his word. This is the extent to which God would go to eradicate sin and sinfulness from his people. For this is the only way that they can dwell in his presence in peace and in security. They gotta be wholly remade because they're wholly sinful. The only thing that is required, if you want to, flip back to chapter 33. Chapter 
chapter 33, verse 10. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, surely our transgression and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. Surely our transgression is on us and we rot because of them. We are dead men walking because of our own sins being placed on our own shoulders. Question, how can we live? Because presently we're dead, we're rotting. Living people don't rot, we're dead. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 11 comes the response of 38. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? These are the lengths to which God would go to dwell with his people. He can't dwell with them in this condition. We gotta remake them all together. What's the one caveat? Turn from your sin and live. It's the simplest message. It's the message that the Christian carries with us everywhere we go. Turn from your sin and live. Once we get to that point where God shows that he'll make these people live again by giving them whole new hearts and by restarting them all together, which is what he did for you and for me when we came by faith to him and responding to his overtures of grace, he makes us new. This isn't a renovation project, friends. This is starting from scratch. After that, the whole rest of the book is all about the lavish love of God toward now a totally remade people. And look at this, friends. The name of the city, the Lord is there. God dwells with his people. He doesn't forgive and give this good gift of new life and pardon from sin in order to lord it over his people. He doesn't offer it and then say, now you see how nice I am? You bunch of punks, right? No, he says, they shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land. He promises to take away even the remembrance of their shame. God doesn't make us feel guilty for the lengths to which he had to go to cleanse us. He says, I'll cleanse you, and I'll even enable you to forget even how grotesque your sin was. That's how complete his forgiveness is. And I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, I'll not hide my face anymore. What is that blessing we speak over one another every week? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord what? Make his face to shine upon you. It's the highest of highs. And then to top it all off, he gives a new vision of a dwelling place, a new city, a new land, touched by holy water pouring from the new temple, a place of renewal fit for a people who have been renewed. Friends, if nothing else, the book of Ezekiel reminds us to look to God for comfort in trouble, 
hope for the future and certainty concerning where it is exactly from which our help comes. Our help comes from the Lord. It is not a small thing that he will make all things new. Well, we'll just say, and that's the book of Ezekiel. Father, thank you for your word and these great promises that you will make all things new. Lord, only when we begin to appreciate um, the greatness of our sin will we really appreciate the greatness of that gift. And so, Lord, may we today relish in the good gift of your promise to forgive and to forget, to take away our shame and our regret, and, Lord, give us the strength not to recognize that the only way to enjoy these good gifts is to sink down uh, into the depths of our own sinfulness, acknowledging it all before you, confessing it all before you, hiding nothing, holding nothing back, and saying, Lord, here it is. Here's all of it. Here's all my sin and all my shame. So that we might drink from that cool water uh, and be made new. And in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.